0: Trinity Harbor Church offers the following audio recording as a ministry without charge or legal restriction. We're located in downtown Rockwall, Texas, serving the greater Northeast Dallas area. For more information, visit us online at TrinityHarborChurch.com. Our prayer is that by this message, you will encounter the Lord Jesus Christ. With some trepidation, we've jumped into the book of Romans, and you can turn there in your worship guides or in your Bibles. Today we're looking at chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. If you're able, I'll ask you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them. covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Just last week, we began our new sermon series in the book of Romans, and we noticed that very much at the heart of the book of the Romans, or letter to the Romans, Paul is wrestling with this question of God's faithfulness. We've gotten to a point where the argument is being made after the death and resurrection of Jesus that the death and resurrection of Jesus is God's faithfulness to all of the promises that have come beforehand, and that would have been a difficult pill for people to swallow. How in the world can I conceive of this one man being raised from the dead to be the fulfillment of all of God's promises that have come before? And Paul has to make a very long and sustained argument in his letter to the Romans to prove that to be the case. And we saw that last week he says that God has revealed His righteousness in the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ. But at the very outset, you need to to recognize and see, as you look closely at verses 17 and 18, which, again, we started in verse 18, but if you have a Bible, you can also look at verse 17, that they're parallel. What Paul is doing is saying, on the one hand, the, uh, God has revealed His righteousness, but the revelation of God's righteousness also means that it is the revelation of His wrath. They are two sides of the same coin. Now, why is this necessary? God could hardly be a righteous God if He does not take serious sin and evil. And so the revelation of His righteousness is going to inevitably condemn and convict unrighteousness. And this is what Paul leads us in dealing with today. The wrath of God may not be a very pleasant topic, but it is an essential topic. If you do not do business with the wrath of God that, and think deeply and long about His wrath against sin and your sin, you will inevitably come up with a God who is more care-bearer-like than He actually is. And your life will be ordered in a way that does not really bring Him honor and glory. And so we must come to balance, as Paul has, that in Jesus Christ, both God's righteousness and His wrath is revealed. And there are two important aspects to how we're going to examine the passage and is what is really at the heart of what Paul is going to unfold for us. The first aspect is the notion of suppressing the truth. And the second aspect is the uh, idea of being handed over. So suppressing the truth is the first thing we must consider. The second thing we must consider is, as a result of suppressing the truth, being handed over. First, what does it mean to suppress the truth? Well, Paul says that God has revealed himself in the world and that he can be known in the world. The people who he's convicting, those who are unrighteous, who are ungodliness, why are they unrighteous and ungodly? Because what God has revealed about himself in the world, they are ignoring and suppressing that truth in unrighteousness. Though it is revealed to them and though it can be known, they are willfully and intentionally ignoring it so that they can order their life in a different fashion. Now, what Paul is not saying is that simply by examining a leaf or going for a swim in a mountain stream you can come to the conclusion of everything that is revealed in the Bible. A Jew would never say that. The Jews knew and prided themselves on being the recipients of God's special revelation. God had set out, and what He had specially revealed to them, who He is and what He expects of them. But what Paul is saying, what we often refer to as general revelation, is that by being exposed to the creation, it is a logical and reasonable conclusion that there is a Creator. There are many arguments throughout the history of the church that demonstrate this kind of thinking, and I think it would be helpful to rehearse just a couple. Number one is the idea that as we look around us, we look at our own bodies, everything is so incredibly complex. Everything is so um, so designed in such a way that uh, that really communicates that there must be some sort of intelligent designer. And sometimes the ideas relate in this fashion. If you were to go and travel to a foreign planet, say you're on, there's a lot of talk about the first space trip to the to Mars. It's being planned and the ship's being designed and the crew is, hope people are actually being hoped to be chosen to be on this crew. And it will take 33 years to get there. So for most people who sign up for this first voyage to Mars, it will be a one-way ticket. None of that is relevant in any way. I just find it fascinating. So let's just get back to, you're walking on Mars. Well, yep, this Tangent. Squirrel. So you're walking on Mars, you're one of the first people there, and you come upon something that obviously you conclude must be some for, form of watch, a time-measuring device. It's got gears and parts that are obviously engineered. It's been put together in a particular way, and it obviously is taking stock of increments of time passing. So you're this person, what do you conclude by virtue of finding this watch? You may conclude, what, my goodness, after billions of years, atoms smashing together, finally they've gotten something right and have produced something that is truly helpful and worthwhile. Or you may conclude that, oh, this is a pretty sophisticated piece of machinery. Its sophistication suggests to me that there must have been someone more sophisticated behind it to produce it, and that's how it's come to be. It has been designed and created by someone. So the thinking goes, if we, who are far more infinitely complex than a watch, uh, are, dis- are, are that complex, then surely there must be an intelligent designer, someone who has created us and created that complexity for it to work. And that is one way that one might conclude that there is a creator from simply the creation that exists around us. Um, that a tree can harness solar energy and store it in a way that we cannot even come close to as a human being. Right? The big one of the big problems of, of our inability to harvest solar energy is our inability to store it. If we had half the technology of a tree, we would be infinitely ahead in terms of green technology. It's this kind of thing that says, oh, there must be some kind of intelligent design designer that has designed these purposes. Another argument that is similar that communicates to us that God, has, that there's a creator behind the creation, is the existence of what, it's not talked about as much anymore, but used to be referred to as natural law. This idea that there is a a certain base level of morality that is ubiquitous among amongst cultures. It's very common to any kind of people. And C.S. Lewis got at this uh, at one point, and he observes it in this way. Everyone has heard people quarreling. Sometimes it sounds funny, and sometimes it sounds merely unpleasant. But however it sounds, I believe we can learn something very important from listening to the kind of things they say. They say things like this. How'd you like it if anyone did the same to you? That's my seat. I was there first. Leave him alone. He isn't doing any harm. Why should you shove in first? Or, come on, you promised... People say things like that every day, educated people as well as uneducated, and children as well as grown-ups. What Lewis is saying, isn't it interesting that when we are offended, we appeal to something that we believe that another person will recognize, even though we might have been raised in completely different homes, if not completely different cultures. Saying this is evidence that there is a basic moral law that undergirds humanity that must have come from outside of ourselves. He says, when you're in this kind of engagement, it's very rare that someone will say, well, I don't care about your moral law. You know, if I'm standing in line and you budge in front of me into the front of the line, I say, listen, there's a line you're budging in front. It's very rare that a person will say, well, too bad for you. Don't you you know who I am? In my moral universe, I get to go to the front of every line. That person is not it's a, it's a very uncommon thing. They would be appealing to something that isn't shared. How much more so when someone does that and acknowledges that they, they did that, they might say, oh, I didn't realize there was a line. Or, oh, I, I know, I'm sorry, I have a plane to catch. May I please go in front of you? In other words, what they're doing is justifying their action by the existent moral code. So Yes, I acknowledge what you are bringing up. I have erred, but here is the reason why this is happening. Can we please come to terms? Again, Lewis says this testifies to a baseline. He says sometimes people say, well, cultures are so different and moralities are so different. And yes, you can find some extreme examples of that. But he said, if you really wanted to find a substantial difference in morality, you'd have to be like going out and finding a culture in which they celebrated people who ran from the battlefield. Or a culture in which it was really noble. And you were considered sophisticated and wise and clever when you underhandedly took people who were kind to you. That would be a truly different culture morally. And it doesn't really exist. So again, this moral code, something that exists in the created order, testifies to something beyond the created order, testifies to a creator. And this is what Paul is speaking of. That... Notions like these testify to the existence of the Creator. And if one is to be exposed to such things and say, no, I'm still going to decide that there's no Creator, or I don't have to worry about the Creator, I don't have to pursue the Creator, I'm going to pursue what I want to pursue. Paul says these people consider themselves to be wise, sophisticated, noble in that pursuit. And he says, actually, they're simply foolish because they have... Uh, pushed it down, and they have rejected that which is revealed to them. They have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for an image, something that is not even a real God in Paul's time, and worship it in hopes that they will receive what they want rather than what the Creator desires for them. So this is the knowledge, the revelation that exists in the world. But we can't stop there because Paul's issue is, As we've hinted at, they take this knowledge, they suppress it, and as a result of suppressing it, of putting it down, the most terrible thing imaginable happens to these individuals. And if you don't understand this to be the most terrible thing that can happen to you, then you don't understand life. And it's that you would be handed over to the lusts of your heart, and God would stop calling out to you. How does this play out for us in the rest of the passage? Look at verse 24. God desires the repentance of all peoples, but for those who continue to suppress the truth He has revealed, those who continue to not be thankful and express gratitude to God, which for Paul is the manifestation of the sinfulness, eventually God is going to hand them over to the lusts of their heart and to their impurity. Now this is a terrible reality. Once you decide to worship the creation rather than the creator, you've become foolish. You're going to place your affections on something that cannot save nor deliver what you hope to gain out of it. And in Paul's mind, you will increasingly become animalistic. In other words, you are created as a human being to be in a loving and worshipful relationship with God the creator. And to the degree that you move away from that, is the degree to which you become more like the animals and less like the human being, the king or queen of creation that you were intended to be. I want you to pay attention to verse 25 for just a moment because it's incredibly important to not reading this passage in a harmful way, which is very frequently done in our culture. Verse 25 I'm going to actually look it up again and read it to you so that I don't get it wrong. Paul writes, Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. The reason that God hands people over is they choose, even though they've received truth, they reject that truth and they worship the creature rather than the Creator. Now, if you are a Jew like Paul living in the first century, and you, you hear what Paul is writing, you cannot help but think of the story of Adam. Right? This is the problem of humanity. We haven't gotten beyond it in any way, shape, or form. And so, who is the one who, having received the truth of God, gave that up and chose to worship himself and to worship what was promised in the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, rather than worshiping God, and thus was handed over to his sin. It is the story of Adam and Eve. But it's not only the story of Adam and Eve, it's also the story of Israel. Adam was God's first son, but Israel is also called God's son. And in Israel tradition, particularly at this time, Israel also had a great failure. Just like they would, they would look at Adam and say, Adam received the truth, he rejected it, he worshipped the creation, he was handed over. Israel also identified a moment in which they were given truth, they rejected it, they worshiped the creation, and were handed over. For an Israelite, what was the moment in which the nation of Israel forsook their responsibility as the Son of God? It was the time in which they made the golden calf. They were receiving revelation from God, but rejected that. They chose to worship an image that represented simply the creation and made out of created things. And in doing that, they were handed over to their unrighteousness and their ungodliness. Now, here's the important part of realizing this. Paul's point is a corporate, um, global point. He says, listen, Adam has been handed was handed over in his sin. Israel was handed over in his sin. And Paul is ultimately arguing to the point where he is going to say, everyone has been handed over in their sin. Everyone is subject to God's wrath. Everyone deserves to die. Paul's argument is a corporate one. He is revealing what is true of all people, true on an individual level as well. Yes, right, but true on a his main argument is one that is very big. Sin is very big. It's very pervasive, and it's a it's a human problem, not simply an individual problem. Do so you understand this passage simply to be about an individual problem? Now, the reason that this is important is because Paul is going to bring out the example of homosexuality as what he's talking about. And if you read this in a very individual way, it makes it incredibly easy to say, okay, let's beat up on homosexuals. And that's not the point Paul is making at all. He's saying this is simply one exhibit of a number that reveal that humanity has chosen to worship the creation rather than the Creator. Now, boys and girls, I know that homosexuality may be a word that you're not familiar with. And Parents, before you get nervous, remember one of the greatest failures of the church is that we play reactive and allow our culture to define things for us. And then we play catch-up. Anything that's going on in the Bible that is addressed by God, I want to be defined first by my household and my church before it's defined by the world in which I exist. So boys and girls, homosexuality is something where a boy wants to grow up and marry a boy or a girl wants to grow up and marry a girl. And the Bible calls it sin. It's not the way that it is intended. And it's what Paul is talking about here in this passage. And we've already recognized the corporate extent of it. But just a further word, that I see to the left and the right so frequently people using this passage as a bludgeon against those who struggle with same-sex attraction. I'll give you two more reasons that that is a horrible way to read this passage. The first is that for Paul, it is the most natural and sensible of examples, because it is something that is in and of itself, it is not natural. Nature reveals to us that God has intended that a male and a female go together. And so homosexuality is a very good example of Uh, When we cease to pay attention to God's revelation in nature, then we begin to go in ways that are harmful to ourselves. But secondly, homosexuality here is not—it is not the first or the ending place in the road to perdition. Right? It is the first of what will become, in verse 28, an incredibly long list of sins which will include covetousness, gossiping, slandering, boasting, disobedient to parents, faithless, just to name a few of the list. You don't have to work very hard to go through that list and be convicted of something. All of this sin for Paul is a revelation that we are rejecting the truth of God and choosing in small ways and in big ways to worship the creation rather than to worship the uh, creator. So why then does this become such an opportunity to zero in on uh, homosexuality? Not in a loving way, but an incredibly judgmental way in terms of speaking of the church at large in American culture. You know how many people struggle with same-sex attraction? Statistics vary. On the low end would be about 2%. On the very highest end possible, uh, coming out in literature which is is pushing that agenda would be 10%. And probably a realistic assessment somewhere in the middle of the road, around 5% of the population. It's an incredibly low number of the overall population. So, if I'm very committed to ignoring my sin and wanting to feel very self-righteous, how better than to choose a sin which a very small portion of the population struggles with? Yes, you may know someone, you probably do, or several who do. But how easy, because of the small minority that struggle with it, to push it aside, to demonize that, and suddenly, I am more righteous. And shame on us for doing so. It is not unique in this list that is offered. All of our sin demonstrates our own suppression of the truth of God and unrighteousness. And that's Paul's agenda, his call for us to deal with. He's a true humanity defined biblically, is one in which we worship the Creator. Paul says, one of the first ways you know that you're in a worshiping relationship with the Creator is you do what? You give thanks. How much time do you spend giving thanks to the Creator for that which is in your life? How much time do you spend complaining to the Creator for that which is, for that which is in your life? Which testifies to whether, you're, to whether or not you're really worshiping Him or ultimately dishonoring him. What does it look like, then, for all of us to be drawn down this road of being tempted to worship the creation rather than the creator? In the Old Testament, right, as Paul is addressing, and even in his own day, people would make little images, right, craft idols that represented some false deity, and they would bow and pray and offer sacrifices because they thought they would get something from the deity and they worshiped the deity that represented the thing they wanted to get. Now, we don't have the tendency to craft idols in our culture, but indeed we do have the tendency to worship aspects of the creation that deliver what we truly most want in our hearts. And just before we talk about what we worship, we want to be clear that we understand the road that that takes us down. The dehumanization, the animal-likeness we receive when we go down that road. And one of the best pictures in the Scriptures of this is of King Nebuchadnezzar, who we find in the book of Daniel. He was a great god of Babylon. And no truth of God had been revealed to him. He eventually says this to himself. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my might, mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there came a voice from heaven. Now before you distance yourself from that too much, how often in the last month have you said, My goodness! Did I not do very well on that exam, or in this situation at work, or in this relationship? Am I not to be praised for how thoughtfully I have considered these things and acted? You may not be the king of an empire, right? But this emotion, this attitude is not foreign from us. To which God replies, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men, and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with dew, the dew of heaven, till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like birds' claws." Nebuchadnezzar worshipped himself, and in that he becomes a picture, an example to us of what it means for God to hand someone over and the uh, the the humanity that departs when we are handed over for, to our loss. Many of you know someone who has struggled or is struggling with addiction. And the road that they go down in the midst of that, where they become less and less human, is the thing that they love becomes more and more important to them And all other things can be sacrificed for that one thing. In what small ways are you really loving and worshiping something of this creation that is making you animal-like? Because you would sacrifice the truly important things, the God-honoring things in your life, to continue to attach yourself to that one thing, to continue to worship it. And Nebuchadnezzar, true, is, is to a degree an extreme example. Think, think of the community in which you exist. We all know spouses, and I've known spouses who so worshipped their spouse that upon the death of the spouse, the other spouse was rendered to a shadow of himself or herself. Their identity, their purpose for living was gone. And as the what they had made to be their God in this world had departed, there was nothing left. I've known parents who, upon the graduation and departure of their children, all of a sudden realize that they've been married to someone that they don't know very well at all, a stranger. Why? Because for 18-plus years, they have been committed to the idol of their children and have poured everything into that. That is what has bound them together. And suddenly, when the children are gone, my goodness, who are you? How do we live together without this purpose of children? without the idol that we've shared in common. I've known some who are so focused on physical appearance that every extra hour is spent at the gym, every extra dollar is spent on beautifying appearance or engaging in some kind of plastic surgery, and others that cling to anything that distances them from reality. They worship escape and pleasure. The great irony being that to pursue escape in a way that is not honoring to God is to pursue a prison that entraps you and doesn't offer escape at all. So how do you recognize this place? It's one thing to talk about it, but, you know, we use extreme examples to make points, but do you realize how subtle and insidious and Everywhere is the temptation to worship some part of the creation. What really receives the best and the most of your time and your energy? Your money. That's really what you worship. And to the degree that you give yourself to that is the degree that you pull yourself back from God. And Paul is saying that this is our condition, but he's also saying that you have a choice saying that there are two roads. There's one that leads to worshiping the Creator. There's another road that leads to worshiping the creation. And you must choose and examine yourself which road you are going to go down. You will either worship the God who has created you, or you will worship something that will die just like you will die. And you have control over that choice, but you don't have control over the outcome of that choice. One road leads to becoming human, one road leads to becoming an animal. So how do you know where you are? I think one of the best ways to tell is uh, where do you really feel threatened? But imagine that most of you, if you're being honest with your heart at all, can pretty readily uh, immediately identify something that you worship. Something that you give that's part of the creation that you give too much affection to, that you worship. And as you start to think about that thing, think about how you react to things that threaten it. When a spouse or a child or a friend comes and says something and says, you know, maybe you are worshiping that a little bit too much. Do you feel threatened and is your reaction strong? That is a most wonderful indicator that you are worshiping that in an inappropriate way and need to repent. For you run the risk of going down a road. Remember, what is the great danger? What is the most terrible place that God would hand you over? And don't be foolish. I have a pastor friend on the West Coast who, uh, in the midst of ministry, was, was in the ministry for decades. And... He started by looking at things he shouldn't have been looking at. And then he started corresponding with people he shouldn't have been corresponding to, with. And then he started having meals with people he shouldn't have meals with. And then he started having intimate encounters with people he shouldn't have intimate encounters with. And he kept this a secret for almost a decade. His home was ruined. His church was ruined. And eventually, un unable to live in the strain of everything that he created, but still very much in love with his idol, he chose to worship that part of the creation. And you could see at this point where he acknowledged it, and he says, yes, I know the truth of God, and I am consciously rejecting it to pursue what I love more. You could see God say, okay, that is the road you will go down, and you are handed over to it. And it has been a road which he is still on and is nothing but destruction. So, the point of that story is this. If you or I are the person who are looking at things we shouldn't be looking at, or writing things we shouldn't be writing to, who, to people we should be writing, or any other kind of sin that you can easily fit in that category, and you think, I'm never going to get to where he got. Really? How do you know? How do you know at what point God may say, I simply hand you over? because you have willfully rejected the truth I have revealed for so long. And it's for that reason that we must be called to repentance. And I can imagine you're asking, where is Jesus in all of this? Paul's waiting to get to Jesus in a particular way, and I'm not going to run ahead of him. So we're simply going to sit with the weight of the sinful condition of the world and God's call to repentance. And Jesus, of course, will be an essential part of this. We can't simply decide that we're going to be righteous. But the other side of that coin is, you had better not play the victimization card. Listen, many of you have been a victim of horrific things in your life. And if I could undo it, I would. For it, I am terribly sorry. But if you start to use those things as an excuse for going down the road of worshiping the creation, then you are taking license that you don't have. And God ultimately will hand you over. Now, just because we don't see Jesus here today doesn't mean there isn't grace in this passage. For when God hands us over, and even when he instructs the elders of the church to hand someone over to their sin, it is always with the goal of repentance. It's repentance that we see in actually when God hands Nebuchadnezzar over, it's not the end of the story. Daniel tells us that at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. Did you get that? After Nebuchadnezzar had been handed over, that handing over was part of his repentance, in which he repented properly at the end and is restored in a proper worshiping relationship with God, but even in that, God even restores all of His majesty and splendor to Him. God wouldn't rob that of him, didn't want to rob that of Him forever, but wanted Him to see it as a gift from God rather than something he, he was entitled to. Friends in this, I want to encourage you to repent. You know the things that receive more of your time and your energy and your money than they ought. And they receive that because you're worshiping the creation rather than the Creator. Repent of that. Turn to the Creator who is gracious and know what it is to be restored in your humanity. Let's pray. Father, we humbly confess that we are part of what Paul speaks of. We all suppress the truth that you have revealed in unrighteousness. And we are all the more guilty because we have the beauty of your special revelation, your word. We have the privilege of knowing the revelation in Jesus Christ Himself. And so we humbly repent and ask that You would forgive us for the ways in which we love such silly things and pray that Your Spirit would be upon us and You would restore us to our humanity, to what You envisioned us to be when You created us. Make us men and women who pursue righteousness and worship You and give You thanks in all things. And in this will we know Uh, the joy of bringing You glory, but also the joy of being who we were intended to be. We ask for Your grace in this and Your help in it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.